This is nervous, man, because it's a different thing. <laughs> it's like first time all over again, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'm just going to go for it. Hi, everybody. My name is Aaron, and my bodacious sidekick here, Zach. We're from a website um, known as revivalhouse.net. Some of you might be aware of our other podcasts that we do. We do film commentaries, usually entertainment-related. Um, but I, I had a bit of an epiphany here lately. We want to try something new. Basically... When we're doing these podcasts like we normally do, uh, Zach and I and Riverman and the people that are a part of those, you know, we're a little confined. There's sometimes we feel like we can't talk about anything because we live in a bit of a PC world. Um, and it just felt really liberating at the idea of having something that, you know what, we, we, we don't have to be afraid to discuss whatever we're, we're feeling. And I felt like, in recent times on those podcasts, some of these sort of topics were seeping their way into the more fun, fair type of discussion, because I think it means that I've been wanting to talk about this stuff and it hasn't really had a home. And this is really hard for me. I'm going to be totally honest because in my personal clicks and even people that listen to uh, the other podcasts that we put on. I'm sort of notorious for being very private, mm-hmm. very private. And I, I, it's very tough for me to be this transparent, but that's what's so alluring about this idea to have a podcast where we're not afraid to be transparent and I'll be honest. So you, you guys are gonna have to bear with me a little bit because like I said, this is like learning to walk all over again for me. I am, mm-hmm. I'm, I can tell you stupid stories all day long about my past, funny stories, silly stuff, talk about entertainment, talk about stupid knowledge. That's not really going to make us any money. Right. But when you put me in a corner and you say, Hey, let's, let's crack open the shell and tell us about your deepest, darkest or what, then it's like, I kind of go into the fetal position all over again. Like, uh, what do I do? It's like, I don't know what to do. So bear with me a little bit if I'm a little shaky because it, it's, it's tough because I've, I've acknowledged that myself, um, me being a very private person, if I sit there and open this up and I post it, well, I am forfeiting that privacy. It's, it's, there's no going back, right? Yeah. So that's, but that's scary, but it's also, like I said, it's, it's alluring. It's attractive in a certain way because I'll, I'll be honest again. This all came about a couple of nights ago because that's what this podcast is going to be about. It's all about honesty, transparency. Um, a couple of nights ago, we were recording one of our normal commentaries. And after we were done recording and it was a fun time, hilarity about, we got real. Like after we were done recording, myself, Zach uh, here and Riverman, who's not, who's not here, uh, we all started talking about very serious stuff because like I said, 
we've started kind of talking about it. that stuff's been sneaking its way in because it's been on my radar. And I kind of got a little naked for a second there. And like I said, it's very hard to talk about, but mm-hmm. talking about uh, depression. And I don't really remember where it started. I don't. Oh, you know what? You know, I think I do. We were talking about a mutual friend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we we're talking about a mutual friend, just just kind of like side commenting on some certain things that, you know, somebody may or may not be going through. And I started sharing what I've been going through. And in that day, and actually the last few days, I've been experiencing it pretty hard, but depression. It's like feeling... <laughs> I don't know what, what, what you think is depression. That's the problem with stuff like that is you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a taboo concept, right? Mm-hmm. You, you never know what constitutes depression clinically until, I mean, obviously you have these famous people that kill themselves and it's horrible. And that's when people are all like, Oh, it was right underneath our noses the whole time. Yeah. You know? And it's like, but I don't know. <sighs> It's it's crazy because when you're feeling sad, you do question, is what I feel normal? Yeah. Is Does everybody else feel like this? I can't speak up because what if everybody doesn't feel like this and, you know, I'll start, be, you know, I'll be targeted for certain types of discussion. It makes you very uncomfortable and you question yourself, well, what is depression? Am I just sad? Maybe I'm just sad. Maybe that's all it is. And, but you're like, well, I don't really have a reason for my sadness or if there's certain emotional triggers, maybe they're subconscious and you, you doubt it. But for some reason or another, this topic and a lot of different topics are taboo. And that's, and then I was in bad, I was in a bad way. I really was. And, and I go through this, you know, it's not just an isolated incident, but you know, you wake up and there's some trigger. I think sometimes we, we know subconsciously, we know what the trigger is. And I think sometimes we don't really realize what it is, but I think there usually is some sort of a trigger. But like I said, I'm not a professional. I'm not pretending to be. Um, but you wake up and your brain just tells you different things. Your brain just sends you these mixed signals that don't make any sense. You know, and I was watching, you know, you know, Zach, when they had uh, like recently they had Chris Cornell who killed himself and they had the Lincoln Park guy, Chester, Chester Bennington kill himself. You know, when these things happen, mm-hmm. um, I know that a lot of people take it lightly. Like, so somebody like Chester Bennington kills himself and then social media comments light up and a lot of people making distasteful jokes looking for like five seconds of laughter from somebody. Right. They're seeking validation somewhere. But honestly, when I see that stuff, it really messes with me mm-hmm. because it makes it really real for a second because because um, I mean, I'm not saying that they're any different than anybody else that suffers through that, but it, it makes it really real and puts a spotlight on it when there's somebody that's, you know, has a lot of money and a lot of success, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. And uh you know, I was watching you, you, you kind of go down that rabbit hole and then like everybody, like, you know, Chester Bennington or whatever kills himself. Everybody starts Googling him, watching all YouTube videos. You just start, everybody tries to play psychotherapist, you know, let me watch these old interviews and let me see if I can spot it, mm-hmm. you know? And I did it too. And I watched this, uh, I think it was labeled as his last interview or one of his last interviews where he was talking about how he felt. And man, I gotta be honest with you. It resonated with me. Like I get it. And I'm not saying that I am on that level or 
you know, it's as bad as his. I don't know. That's the thing. He was talking about, um, you know, his mind. It's like, you don't, it's hard for people to understand. His mind t- gives him mixed signals. It's like you wake up and your mind, your mind tells you that you're horrible. You're a burden. You know, nobody loves you. You feel under just every, all these things that don't make any sense at all. Like I was feeling like that and I get like that. I feel, I feel self-loathsome. You know, you just hate myself. I feel extremely lonely. Like it's one of those things where you could be lonely in a, in a packed room, right? Mm -hmm. But you feel so lonely and you feel like you can't do anything right. And you feel like no one, you feel like you're a burden on any, on everybody. And it would be better. You'd be doing everybody a favor if you were gone. And the thing is, is like, you know, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you have a lot of people have a parent or a mother or somebody that would be sad if they were gone, but you don't think about that in the time. It's so weird, but you're, it's like me, like I said, it's a taboo thing. Um, I don't know what's normal, like (laughs) what's the normal amount of depression or what kind of thoughts are, are, are tolerable and what's to be concerned over. I have no idea because nobody wants to talk about it. But, um, in my case, I don't, I don't know if you can relate Zach, but, um, I, I, when I get like that, I mean, I, I do think about suicide. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it kind of like, if you're not sure if you're just sad or if you have depression, I think that's kind of where, uh, that's a telling sign is like, if you think about suicide at, you know, you really consider it. But see, and this is where I think, like, maybe I'm not to that point. I don't want to take drugs. I don't want to do all that stuff. I don't want people to shove shit down my throat. I don't, I don't, I don't want to just go to that stuff unless it was like totally necessary. And I'm not trying to say, cause I'm not like it every day, but it does pop up occasionally on occasion. Um, and it feels like it's happening a little bit more in recent years, but, um, and I'm not at the point where, for example, and the only reason I'm talking about this is, you know, like I said, I, I maybe people can relate, but, um, I'm not, a, I would never get to the point where I would actually do it. Not right. You know? Yeah. You know, it's not like I'm actually, uh, you know, stepping up to the ledge or, or, you know, buying the pills or whatever, but it's just, it's more like me laying in the dark and just thinking all these things, thinking about what it would be like constantly thinking about, you know, what it would be like to not be here. Um, how people would probably not even bat an eye. And yet I, my suffering would be done in that moment. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's like me trying to rationalize it and make sense of it. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, I don't know (laughs) if that's like the extreme version of it, but I will tell you this. I break down when I, when I, when I think the the fact, the mere fact that I'm even thinking about it makes me so upset with myself. And that Mm -hmm. just kind of fuels it even more because I'm already in this like place of self-loathing. And then I think about myself like, and here I am thinking about not being here and giving up life. And then it makes me hate myself even more Mm -hmm. because it's like, how disgusting is that? That's, this is how I feel when I'm in that moment. Cause it's like, I, there's people that would kill to live that don't get to live. You know, Mm -hmm. I come from a lot of loss in my family. You know, I, I had a little sister that passed away when she was three years old. She, uh, yeah. 
See, look, okay, everybody, this is how I don't talk about stuff. I I record with Zach all the time, and he's he's already finding out new things about me. Um, yeah, I, I had a little sister, and she passed away uh, when she was three. She fought cancer for three months. She was okay. diagnosed when from from diagnosis. You know, she was diagnosed, um, and then from diagnosis, she was she lasted three months. But um, she was born with Wilms tumor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't really know. I don't really know. I, I don't know if Wilms tumor is just the term for the, uh, the, you know, the tumor that you're born with, or if it's actually like a special kind of tumor. I don't really know, but I, I think that's what they kind of give to, to babies that are born with it. Yeah. And yeah, she was three years old and, and there was a, a tumor and it was in her stomach. Like she, you know, early in her life, it just kind of looked like she had a belly. You know, it wasn't any, not really of any concern. Yeah. Uh, it didn't seem to be. But then it's like by the time she got three, two and a half years old, something like that, it's like the the the, her, the growth, her stomach. It wasn't like a weird like bump. It was just her whole stomach. It just looked like she had a big stomach. And me, you know, I was somebody that visited my house, my family's house, you know, on occasion. So I didn't see her every day. So when I showed up. I could really tell the difference, right? Because I remembered the last time I saw her and there had been like a gap of time in between, correct? Yeah. So, uh, and there was a point where I went over when she was, um, you know, she was two. Because I remember she had her birthday, her third birthday in the children's hospital. So, she was two when she got diagnosed. I, w- I went over and this, I would go over on a weekly basis. But I remember at this particular time, I had gone almost a month. For, for whatever reason that was going on, I hadn't been out there as much as I'd like to have been. And I came over and I saw her and her stomach was really big, but the rest of her body was really skinny. Like her arms had no meat on them. Her face was skinny because, you know, she used to be chubby all around, but she's getting older. And I'm like, this isn't right. Like, <laughs> this does not look right. And, um, you know, I tried telling my mother because I think uh, as parents, you don't want to think bad things about your kids, right? Yeah. And uh, so maybe it was harder for them to see it because, you know, I had been pointing that stuff out for a while. Like, you might want to get that checked. I don't think that, you know, like this doesn't look uh, normal. You know, and of course, naturally, some they're going to think, well, she likes to eat. Well, she eats well. You know, she's good. Like, okay. So it wasn't discovered right when she was born? No, no, no way. Um, but like I had noticed some things like <laughs> along the way, like her stomach, like, cause it wasn't like her stomach was firm. It was kind of firm. And like I said, they're just, oh, you know, she likes to eat. Everything's fine. Cause she was normal. She was fine. But like I said, man, when I, when, I, when she was like too late in her late second year, I, and I had been gone for a month, I came over and that belly of hers was, you know, protruding even more. But now whatever the cancer inside her was taking her nutrients and she was skinny. Like this wasn't fat. This was the cancer. Yeah. Cause she had no, she was just malnourished and I, I got over there and I'm like, okay, did you just take her to a doctor? This is not normal. Like let's take the blinders off. And I remember, you know, my mom, as soon as I said at that time, my mom broke down cause she had kind of realized too, yeah. um, that there was something wrong. And, uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't know what it was about that moment that made people finally kind of realize. But they, they took her, and yeah, she, she had, she was diagnosed right then and there, and literally, it, it happened so fast. Um, 
they were rushing her to the children's hospital in like Kansas city. And literally they flew her, they airlifted her and it just happened so fast. It's like one second, you know, you're eating <laughs> corn on the cob at home. You take into the doctor and like, Whoa, we got to airlift her over here. She's in a bad way. It just happened so fast. And, but anyway, you know, she fought it for three months and it's so weird when it's like a kid because they don't really, they, they don't, they barely know about life, let alone death, mm-hmm. you know, being that old, she had her third birthday in the children's hospital. Like, I don't know about you, but you're lucky. Like the third or fourth birthday of your life is the the first one we remember typically. Right. Yeah. So like, that's like the first birthday she would have remembered. But like I said, she didn't really know any better, right? She was so young. And when you're three, you're starting to really kind of formulate, you know, words and kind of come into your own. She had made her first friends in a children's hospital. Yeah. In a children's with, with other kids that were suffering. And, um, I don't know. And I'll never forget how tough it was. Um, and God bless my mom because she, she lived with her in, in that children's hospital for the, like the entire three months. Yeah. In, in, in a different city. She didn't leave her side. And you know what? God bless my father even more because he still had to put bread on the table. There was other, I come from a very large family, one of 10. Really? Yeah. So you didn't even know that either. Jeez. Hmm. Okay. So I'm the second oldest of 10. So I'm quite a bit older. Like she, I, I'm I, 20 years older than, than my sister that passed away would have been. Right. So hmm. there's quite a big gap. So I didn't live at home or anything. But, uh, you know, like I said, God bless my dad even more, too, because he had to still put bread on the table and he worked. He couldn't, he couldn't like live with her. He couldn't spend every moment with her. He had to sit there and work his job to, to feed the other kids and to pay the rent. And every, every day he had off, he was driving up, you know, four hours on his days off to be there with her. Like he was running on few, you know, empty fumes, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so basically where I'm trying to tie that around is to, I remember when she died and well, I remember when they sent her home, they sent her home and they said, look, eventually like if she's only got a week to live, we'd, we'd predict. So just send her home and enjoy, you know, time with her and she doesn't have to be hooked up to a bunch of stuff. And, you know, cause she had like her tube, she called, you know, like the, the tube they had stick in your chest, you know, for the chemo, they keep it there. Yeah. And it was, see, she was so innocent. Like I said, she didn't know any better. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't, I don't know if she realized that what she, the situation she was in was unique, or I don't know if she didn't think it was maybe, maybe to her, she thought, thought everybody did that when they were three years old, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but I know that she grew up super fast, <laughs> just like in the three months dealing with that. She was super smart, super witty, very adult. And, um, and she called her tubes in her chest her tubies. Right. Mm-hmm. My tubies. Yeah. It was, it was adorable and sad. And, um, you know, they'd have to flush out her tubies. It became part of her day. Like, okay, flush out my tubies. And it was just sad that that had to be part of her day, that mm-hmm. that had to be the norm for her. And, you know, like I said, when they sent her home and they said, Hey, you only have a week to live. That was depressing. I witnessed firsthand somebody that, like I said, barely knew about life. Certainly didn't know anything about death. No three-year-old thinks about death. So it makes me feel way worse when I'm even thinking about the the hypotheticals of not being on this earth, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, how insulting is that? 
Because like my little sister, for example, and all the kids that I saw in that hospital, they would have given anything, you know, I, what's even worse is like, there was a, there was a child that uh, she befriended in that hospital um, that was older. She was like 12 or 13, man, what a messed up age to have that going on. Cause now you do know better. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, you're too young to really know what life is completely, but you're old enough to know what death is. Mm-hmm. And this, this poor girl, they had her on, you have to put them on meds because they get so depressed of their situation. They get really depressed and cause they know what looms and it's just such a dark place, man. I can't believe my mother <laughs> was able to stay there for, for as long as she did. I mean, it just wears on your spirit. So, uh, but yeah, like I said, it was pure innocence and I watched it. I watched somebody purely innocent that didn't know her situation, that didn't know about death, that was going through this. And we all had to be quiet. We all had to just keep our chins up and, and treat, and treat everything normal and be, you know, be happy and play with her. We couldn't, nobody talked about the D word around her, you know, and it's just, when they sent her home, it, it was rough. And this is, um, we're going to kind of transition to something else that plagued me for a little bit. But um, when they sent her home, I did something insanely selfish that I, I still hate myself for. But I was so exhausted by that time emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. because it's an, it's an emotional roller coaster. Cause you got to think about it. You know, my mom, I'm not saying my mom was the strongest. I mean, but she was of course breaking down over it all. Right. Of course she is. That's mm-hmm. her baby. And my dad too, my dad was trying to be the tough guy trying to stand for, but like me, I felt like I had to not break down. I felt like I had to be strong and you have to be normal as you can be. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I feel bad because I, I, I want, I, I'm saying I was exhausted, but it's like my mom put in more time. My mom was like at the hospital every day. She was mentally exhausted. Um, my dad was physically exhausted and mentally exhausted. And me though, I just, I think my thing was during this whole time, I had nobody to talk to about it. Yeah. I could, I, cause, cause think about it. The only, it's kind of a family matter. So, you don't talk about, and I don't want to talk. The only people that really know about it is your family. And you don't want to talk about it with your family because I don't want to talk about it with my mom because I don't want her to break down. She's trying to be tough, right? Yeah. So you don't, you don't go there. I don't want to talk to my dad about it because it's the same thing. So I, I just sort of pretended it wasn't happening for like three months. And that was just, it's, it's kind of the reason why we're doing this whole podcast. It's like when you sit on these things, it's not necessarily healthy. Yeah. And, um, Anyway, when it came down to her coming home for the last week, and they're like, hey, enjoy every second, um, she's done, I I couldn't deal with it. I stayed home. Mm. I, I didn't go. I should have stayed every day that last week or whatever it was and just hung and spent time with her, right? Because, um, But I couldn't do it. And I remember I sat there in my apartment, and I even acknowledged it. I'm like, I'm going to regret this. But the other part of my brain was like trying to block that out, be like, you know, I'm tired and I just didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to go there and really like meet it head on that. Wow. She's going to die. And sure enough, I didn't spend any time with her that whole week. 
And <laughs> then the call came that she passed away in my mother's arms. She did. She passed away in my mother's arms at her house. My mom describes it very well. She says she was just sitting on her sofa talking to my grandmother, who we all call Grammy. And uh, my sister called Gammy, right? She can't pronounce it that well. And um, she was just holding her in her arms on the couch talking to Gammy. And all of a sudden, my little sister, my mom says she kind of started hallucinating, which they say that's what you do right before you die. Yeah. You, you start kind of hallucinating. And she just started kind of pointing in the living room or something like, Mommy, do you see the frogs? She loved frogs. That was her thing. She loved stuffed frogs. They were just so cute to her. And butterflies. And she was just pointing out these frogs that no one else could see. Like, what? And and then she turned over. And then, because my mom was talking to her, Gammy. And the last thing she said was, Mommy, can we go over to Gammy's house? And then she died. And then, of course, uh, the appropriate people were called. And then I was working with my dad at the time. And, uh, my dad got the call and he just runs out of the back of the place. It was a restaurant crying. I never saw my dad cry, by the way. <laughs> and he was just telling me, you know, Meredith, that's what was her name, Meredith, Meredith's dead. And he was just rubbing his eyes and he ran out the back door. Didn't wait for me or nothing. I just got in my car and I left. And, and, uh, my thing was I was racing about, a, oh, I was going about like a hundred miles an hour because I instantly felt bad. Of course, once you get the news, you feel bad. Like, oh, here it is. Here's the regret. Yeah. And I, I was going about a hundred miles an hour because at that point I just wanted to make it to my mom's house before they took her away. Mm-hmm. Cause they send it, they send in the people to come take the body. And cause I, I felt like I had to see her before I missed out on that. And I luckily did. You know, I, I, I got home and I saw my mom holding her and yeah, I witnessed the whole thing and it's just, it was rough, man. And like I said, and I felt horrible. And from that point on, I felt immense guilt for a whole year. I did. I felt terrible. I, I, I couldn't sleep at night because I felt so fucking selfish and horrible because here's where it's coming from. My little sister, when you're three years old, when you're that young, all you know about is your family. Yeah. She she wasn't in school, she didn't make school friends, she didn't know about the world. She just knew her family. That was her world. Her mom, her dad, her brothers, her sisters. That's it. So the only thing that she could have ever wanted was to spend time with her brothers and sisters and her family, and I rejected that. Not even thinking not even thinking about that <clears throat> at the moment. That, that's not I don't think that's how I was thinking about it at the moment. That I was depriving her of probably the only thing that she could have wanted or known. But I, I did. I rejected it and I didn't want to go. So I felt like a, a big pile of shit basically after the fact. And uh, like I said, I dealt with it. Uh, but every every black cloud has a silver lining as they say. And uh, I do think that good is birthed from bad. You know, they coexist. Mm-hmm. And... You know, is I feel like if we're strong enough to 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 make it through a storm, you know, I feel like God always throws you a bone. If we could just make it through, 
There's always yeah. some kind of reward at the end or, or, or whatever at the time that doesn't make sense. You know, you ask a lot of questions like, why, 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 why she didn't deserve to die? She was the most innocent out of all of us. And she was the sweetest, you know, kids love unconditionally out of all of us. Like, why did she get sick? You know, when there's like, believe me, people in my family that <laughs> have earned their punishments, you know, in certain ways, it's like, why her? So I've learned that that whole situation taught me that even in times where it doesn't make a lick of sense, just have faith that it'll make sense later. Yeah. And it did. It did make sense later because, um, well, for one, she taught me to be fearless because um, when she died, it, it, it held me open my eyes. I was like, wow, life is precious. Why am I sitting on my butt? Because I was kind of at that uh, moment in time where I, I didn't feel like I was progressing. You know, I had this grand epiphany. I was sitting in my apartment and I had gotten home from work, the same job I had worked for four years to the same apartment I lived at for four years. And I sat down eating the same unhealthy, crappy meal I had eaten for four years. And then I, there was a moment I sat down. It was probably like a hot pocket or something. Grow, which I don't eat that stuff anymore. I'm too old for that. I, but back then you didn't care about that stuff. And I was eating a hot pocket, like, like a bachelor would. And I sat down, same couch. I turned on TV and I think this is what the trigger was. It was the same episode of like full house. Like I, I literally had this big deja vu moment. Like, like I've been here before. You know, yeah. watching, watching the episode of Full House where Michelle falls off the horse and gets amnesia as I'm probably eating the exact same flavored hot pocket as another time. And, you know, it's like everything just clicked. And, um, it's like, why am I afraid? What am I doing with my life? And I, I had social problems. I had social problems. I, I didn't, uh, like talking. I didn't like talking, um, Unless I was spoken to. I mean, I could talk, but you had to like, I had to have reason. It was like that Clint Eastwood thing where, you know, I, I don't talk much, but when I do, it's going to be important. And uh, I certainly didn't like hugging people, touching people, uh, people invading my bubble. And uh, I felt like that was a problem. And whatever. I, I looked at the case with my sister that was going on at the same time. And th this is actually at the same time. Like she, she hadn't passed away yet. Um, and it's like, why am I afraid? Like she is sitting She's sitting in a bed right now getting chemo chemicals pumped into her. And I'm pretty sure, like, I don't care what it is you're scared of. Some people are scared to talk in front of a, a crowd, right? Mm -hmm. If I were to get, if I were to tell you, hey, go up in front of 500 people and give a speech, a lot of people get clammy and nervous. And that's the way I would have been back then. But now I could go up and talk in front of 10,000 people if you dared me, because it's as easy as putting into perspective, like, what am I scared of? Like yeah. what, that I'm going to mess up my words that they're going to laugh at me. First of all, they're probably not. Second of all, if they do laugh at me, who cares? They're, they've all got busy lives. They're going to forget about you 15 minutes after they walk out of this place. Who cares? I'm pretty sure anybody that's on their deathbed right now, especially a kid would give anything to trade places with you. Like, give me that paper. I'll go fucking give a speech. You want to take these chemicals? Yeah. You know, in this doubt, it's, it's just ridiculous. And that taught me so much. And then like, just like that, I wasn't scared anymore. It was that easy. And then I was somebody that never had even been in a big city in my own country, let alone out of the, out of the country. And then I did, I, I, I traveled, 
she was my inspiration to break out of the social barriers and leave the country. And I did for a good five years, accumulative. And because I, I figured, I figured to myself, well, if I can do it once, I'll be cured and I'll be fearless and I can do it more and more and more and more. And it worked. I figured it's like, you know, if, if I thrust myself fish out of water, a stranger in a strange land, um, no, nobody go totally by myself, disconnect myself from everything that I know and am familiar with, um, at home that may or may not be causing negative vibes to pollute themselves into, into my everyday. If I go there totally separate from all that stuff, it's going to put me in a situation where one, I have to refamiliarize myself with God because I don't know anybody anymore. I'm vulnerable, right? When you're vulnerable, watch it. You'll talk to your higher power. I guarantee it. And two, it'll force me to talk to people I don't know, right? You're in a big city. You don't know what's going on. You're out of your country. You're going to go up. You have to go up to people and, hey, like, where's this place? Hey, can you direct me to this place? Just those little things. And um, it works like wonders, man. You know, I started off easy. I went to England. You know, I figured, okay, English language. I I won't go too crazy too fast. But after I did that, I worked in Scotland. I worked in Scotland in a hostel, which is, a, that's a great story in its own and, uh, was spent my time in the UK. But dude, once I did that, I was ready for the big leagues. Then I went to Asia, like no English, like living in China for a while, you know, and I just, I became fearless. Everything that I predicted was right. And I was right. And, um, I don't know. I felt like I was doing my sister justice and to kind of wrap up the thing with my sister, I, I did sort of like, uh, come to terms with how I felt about all that stuff. Cause I remember I was sitting one night in this, uh, room I had gotten in China in Beijing. I was in Beijing at the time and, um, it was bugging me. I, I couldn't sleep and it was driving me crazy. So I got up and I wrote a poem and I know that sounds really, you know, dainty. Aww. I write poetry. I write poetry. Go for it, man. I do. I do. I write, um, you know, it doesn't always come out like in poetry, I'll write music and, uh, you know, now I, I dabble and try and write, uh, you know, stuff in screenplay form and, but it's like, it's got to come out some way. And I got up and I wrote this poem. I just wrote it. I just wrote on paper and it's, it's just like throwing spaghetti at the wall. You know, I don't think about it. I just write. And that's how I write any, if it's like going to be poetry, I write it like that. I don't think about what's going to rhyme, what's going to sound good. I just write. And, uh, if it's flawed, it's flawed. And I wrote this piece that I still have. And then I look at from time to time. And the second that I wrote that down and I sort of purged it onto, onto the, I want to say paper, but it was not that poetic. It was on a laptop. You know, yeah. I'm a child of the nineties. Um, it, I was instantly cured. It was therapy, right? Yeah. It was me owning up to my guilt and me saying, I'm sorry on paper or, or, or Microsoft word. And I'm saying it, it works. So, so there's something to that vocalizing and talking about things, it, it sort of relieves that pressure valve. And I don't know, but I'm rambling a little bit, but anyway, so I still feel stupid. We all deal with things. And my thing is, yeah, it's like the depression thing. I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to like uh, devalue life because I know it's a great thing. And, but I also, um, show sympathy or empathy or both to people that, you know, claim that they're not understood because some people don't understand. 
some people are like, hey, you know, I feel a certain way. And then somebody else who doesn't get it and they can't relate, they're like, oh, man, you need to go out and jog. <laughs> you know, and, and there's something to that because I don't think I'm like to a point where I'm at a point where I think that's how I maintain myself pretty well is like I can go out and get exercise. I make sure I go out and I take a, a jog for an hour every day and then I go to the gym, get some sun. That stuff helps. That's probably what keeps me pretty even keel most of the time. But when it hits me hard, dude, the last thing I want to do is go out and jog. Yeah. You know, so that's that. And that's not their fault, but that's a testament to people just not understanding. They think it's just like, oh, you're sad. You know, go watch a funny movie. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've had um, people like I, I don't talk about this stuff very much. Like I said, this is kind of what this is all about. One time I, I tried talking to somebody one time and, uh, you know, it kind of made me not want to do it anymore because, like I said, it was somebody that was great, but they didn't quite understand. And they I think they literally told me to uh, take a nap whenever I'm like this. I just go to sleep, wake up better. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Who knew? I'll just take a nap. <laughs> yeah. I'll just go to sleep. And uh and of course, when you're really like over the past few days, man, I you know, I of course you want to try that. That's all you want to do. You don't want to get out of bed. I I laid in bed and <laughs> I literally laid in bed for 6 hours staring at the ceiling. Yeah. Just I couldn't make sense of anything. And uh dude, I was bawling like a baby. Because it just kind of happens and you can't, you can't control what's going on. And all you want to do is actually fall asleep. You just kind of fall asleep. And I, and this was, this was a particular strong bout. And I, I woke up and I still felt that way. It didn't help. I felt that way. And I was like that for an entire next day. And, uh, so I don't know. So maybe that's the point of all this. It's, it's just therapy for me. That's probably where it started out because, like I said, it was a bit of a trigger when Zach and I, uh, we just kind of talked about this in private uh, a couple of days ago, like I said, and uh, it kind of felt good. It did. And it's like, well, maybe maybe this is a way for me to not directly talk. Like, it, you know, because you feel like you're burdening people. I get it. I mean, now I, now I know it's stupid. Like, I, you know, there's a bunch of people that would listen to you typically, but you feel like you're going to burden people. It's like the thing you'd want to do most is talk to somebody when you're feeling like that. But the last thing you'll ever do is reach out to talk to somebody because you don't know if you're going to be, you, you think you're a burden. You don't know if you're going to be judged. You don't know what's up. Um, but I figured, Hey, this is kind of a cool platform because it's not like I'm directly calling somebody in the middle of the night and feeling like I'm going to burden them or bug them. I'm broadcasting it. Right. We're putting in, we're putting in podcast form, glorious podcast form, and we're inviting people to listen to it if they want to. Mm -hmm. And hopefully maybe we can share a platform and, you know, if something that we're talking about, it doesn't even have to be something we're not talking about. Um, if somebody wants to share, send us a message, um, share a story that they got going on. We can relate. Let's talk. And I I think we should have, I want to have people on it, the show. And, you know, like if you, if you've got something going on in your life, I don't care. It doesn't have to be, I want to get this out. I'm just, the depression thing's very relevant because that's what we were talking about just recently. And that's kind of what was on my mind because of what I deal with sometimes. But, um, it doesn't have to be about that. I want this to be a no walled type of atmosphere 
right? I want to talk about religion if you want to. I want to talk about paranormal. I want to talk about the great beyond, life and death, heaven and hell, your fears. I it just I, I like the idea of taboo topics. All these topics mm-hmm. that people can't they don't feel like they can talk about. You know, depression's one of them. We don't feel like we can talk about it. And thus we don't know what's normal or not. We're scared. We keep a lid on it. Ah, da, 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 until things explode and somebody's like, you know, going mm-hmm. overboard with it. And uh, but like what's that? I, I actually still have because my backup, I still have our whole like conversation, I guess, if you want to tack it on in this episode or something. Uh, I'll, I'll think about it. maybe. Oh, well, it's the backup. So like the quality because yeah. I wasn't recording. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, maybe. I'll send it to you and you can listen to it and everything. Maybe. We'll we'll see. Um, but Because we're all about transparency here. That's the thing. I think if I doubt myself and I have to contemplate, that probably means I should do it. Because my thing here is honesty. Like if I if I have to think twice about talking about something, that means I should do it. But um, yeah. but it doesn't have to be about that stuff. Like I said, um, I'm into all of it. There's lots of taboo topics. Um, for example, if you're somebody that is of faith, um, if you go to whatever, sorry, your churches, you know, it's like, I think everybody deals with times in their life where they feel like they're losing their religion, right? You know, they're losing their faith or they're questioning, you know, their higher power or mm-hmm. what they're taught. And believe me, that's not something you talk about when you go to church, you know, you're afraid to speak up. If you're, you sometimes you still go to church, but you're feeling those doubts. And the first thing you want to do is bringing up that, hey, in a room full of these quote-unquote people that are so perfect that you're not quite on the same level right at that moment. You feel like it's the same thing with depression. You feel like you might be judged. You feel like you're not going to be understood. But the thing is, is everybody goes through times where they just question and they have to sort of reevaluate stuff. That's taboo. Let's talk about stuff like that. I don't care. Um, I think I can't shut my mind off ever. I why stay up late at night and I just think and think and I think about I think about the galaxy I think about possibility of aliens I think about um like I said ghosts and I think about uh, the past I think about the future I I think about like I said life and death and all that stuff and yeah I don't I don't know it's just I'm really sorry to hear about your sister man that's heartbreaking Yeah I mean th- here's the thing so the thing with the sister, my sister, uh, this is all stuff that I think, even if you can't directly relate to it, I think everybody can at least indirectly relate to everything we can talk about. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of it. You know, and that's something I learned when I traveled. You know, the thing is, is it felt like life, it feels like life moves really fast. You know, we're so consumed with our daily lives. Um, you know, and that was my thing. I was sitting in that apartment with the, the same Hot Pocket, watching the same Bob Saget TV show. And I basically my life now. I couldn't differentiate that day from any of the previous days of the last four years. You know, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like where's my life going? It was a blur, and I knew I had to change it. And so, you know, when I traveled, I did. I made it my life's mission to. You know what? I'm going to make sure that you know, for like right now, I don't want 2017 to be to be the same as 2018 and and I don't want it to be the same as any they have I I want to be able to tell you exactly where I was in a month and a year if you call it out to me right I want it to stand out and the thing is like I was saying life moves so fast you think 
You think it all just goes by in a blur, but if you really stop, close your eyes, and you think about every moment you've ever had, like really itemize all the key moments in your life. You know, I'm talking about all the times you your, your feelings were hurt, every time that you laughed, you smiled, you were happy, Christmases and birthdays, uh, the good memories and the bad, every time you've ever had your heart broke. Um, when you really just kind of sit and itemize all that stuff in your mind, it really does feel like a lot, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like go through every year of your life. And it's funny because when we think of things in the grand scheme of things, we're just, we kind of look at li- little checkpoints. It's like, oh man, it feels like just yesterday was Christmas. Uh, you know, that makes things go by so much faster. But like I said, you've actually been through a lot. And I thought to myself, well, what if I multiply that by 6 billion, right? There's a lot of people out there with a lot of stories that have done a lot of living, you know, and that's what I did. I wanted to travel and I want to meet people uh, that were from different places. You know, I didn't want to be that stereotypical American that didn't know anything (laughs) past their backyard and, you know, America and all that stuff. I didn't want to be like that. I want to be cultured. And uh, I wanted to learn the stories because it seemed like, man, I've been through so much. Can you imagine you multiply that by so many people and how much you learn? I learned that we're all the same, basically. I mean, we're different. We come from different walks of life, different things sort of satisfy us. Man, I, I went to places where they had very little. They were poor and living in living in slums, but they were happy. It was like yeah. the same bare necessities. We're making them happy. Well, I mean, like the things that should make us all happy, we're making them happy. They had no money. They they had just like the bare minimum, if that, to get by. But they had like their kid or they're their, their smiling, they're laughing. They had uh, fellowship. And it was crazy. We get blinded by that here in other first world countries where we have technology. We have like the broken nail syndrome, right? You have these people on TV that – uh freak out and, 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 and call certain things catastrophes when they're not, right? Like things that don't matter, they're not catastrophes. You know, yeah. celebrity celebrity culture and everything that happens and um, even stuff in our everyday life, man. Like and you see it all over social media. You know, people, people uh, post pictures of something at their dinner or the club they're at and it'll be like FML, fuck my life or something. They'll be so mad over something stupid. I'm like, I've always got something in perspective. It's like, man, uh, people die. Mm-hmm. People die. None of it matters. You're alive. You're healthy. If you got your health, you got your wealth, as the saying goes. But uh, yeah, you know, when I met all those people around the world, I met uh, Buddhists, Muslims, uh, just people that didn't speak English, people that could speak English. And I, I, I learned that even if you can't speak their language or, you know, and, and you come from totally different parts of the world – you can find a common thread with anybody. It's easy. You can break the ice so easy with somebody. I remember talking to this little kid uh, in China and uh, couldn't speak a lick of English. He was poor. I mean, he was like in a slummy area. But it's as easy as saying something nice about the kid's shoes or the shirt he's wearing, finding something to relate to, right? It could be something. It could be like the same color as like what you're wearing. It could be something. It doesn't take much to really break the ice with somebody. And before you know it, you guys are comfortable. You guys are comfortable and it just unravels from there. It's really amazing. It's really insane to watch it and just uh, really step outside of your zone with that stuff. But we're, And it makes you realize that some people in privileged countries got their heads up their asses with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. But um, yeah, thank you uh, for 
the, the words about my sister. Um, I mean, we could, we could go on, on all day about that stuff, but that really got me, man. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm crying, because, dude. I can tell because you can relate to it, right? Because mm-hmm. but here's how you can relate to it. Um, because you have a little niece you talk fondly of all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's, that's good when people can put stuff in perspective. When you see something like that happen to somebody else, you should put in perspective, like, oh man, if that ever happened to such and such person, I don't know what I could do. And it makes you cherish them because life is so, it's so fragile. It's not, it's not guaranteed. And that also helps you cope too. I mean, when you, when you really think about it, that life isn't guaranteed. Like literally you could get squashed by a bus tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It does help you not be afraid. Yeah. Like, don't be afraid to live your dreams. Don't be afraid to take chances. You know, don't be afraid to, you only live once, man. Is that what the kids are saying? YOLO. Are they still saying that? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not, but don't seriously. Why be afraid? Why be afraid of failure? It's so stupid. Like we're all going to be in a pine box. <laughs> 50, 60, 70 years or whatever. Anyway, you might as well make the most out of it, you know? Uh, and in, in my case, it's like, I don't know. I think, uh, I think we should go for what we really want, what's going to make us happy. And I think if God blesses us with any sort of wealth, we're, we're always, um, we're always obligated to share it, you know? And, and I think it's our responsibility. So it's like, I, I would love to, be in this place where I could employ people and and give advice to people and help people in any way. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all just people that want to buy our mom's houses, right? Yeah. Take care of the people we love and all that stuff. But, you know, it's funny not to, uh, we can kind of go down that. So you relate to me like on the, you can think about someone like your niece or whoever. I mean, obviously, but also I'm not trying to like, I want you to feel comfortable talking about stuff. I don't want to just talk for you, but I know you've experienced loss as well. And, uh, you know, what's happened is, you know, I, I'll actually backpedal a little bit. And I'll say this. Remember how I said, um, things that don't make sense in the moment will make sense later. Mm-hmm. Everything serves a purpose. It might not seem like it. It may seem totally worthless that a child dies, but it's not without, you know, valuable cause because what happened our valuable reason rather see my dad was not a good guy he wasn't a good guy he him and my mother were pressured into marriage at 16 they started having kids you know about immediately almost and he was kind of a wild child he wasn't ready to grow up he was a rebel and um you know some of the older kids like me i'm on the top of the totem pole we didn't have it good we didn't have it good. You know, he was in and out of prison. He was abusive. He was a drug addict, you know, abusive physically, emotionally, you name it. It was everything, which, you know, eventually you learn to take a hit. The emotional abuse never gets better. That's actually far worse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you learn, you learn to take a flight of stairs like a champ, right? Or whatever, um, head through a wall or whatever. But, um, I don't know. It was weird, man, because like I said, he was a real, he was not an ideal father. He had a lot of demons and it seemed like when my sister was born, the one that passed away, she was the last, she was the bottom of the totem pole. 
he was 40, 41. I think he was 40. He was 40. That's about the time he probably should have started having kids because, and he was still bad up until then. Dude, actually, he probably hit his peak of badness at about 40 when she was just born. But uh, when she started getting a little older after she was born, it just changed him. It was so weird. Like I watched this giant just melt because he was one of those guys, hard exterior, never smiled, didn't tell you his feelings. I, I, I've known my dad longer than, you know, most people. And I don't know a fucking thing about him. I still don't. You know, some dads will be like, they'll tell you, they'll be telling you old stories from high school and stuff like that. And all these stories you've heard a million times. And I never, never heard anything. My dad might as well have been born in 1986 with me. Cause to really? me, he didn't exist. He didn't exist before I did. Yeah. I don't know. He's a mystery. Total mystery still to this day. And it's crazy. He's the most fantastic, fascinating figure in my life. Cause he's such an enigmatic presence. It blows me away. But, um, Anyway, when she was born, she changed him. This was before she got sick. She she actually got him to respond. Like he was, um, you know, he loved her. He told her he loved her. He just started acting like a father. This little girl changed him because she was special. She really was. And she brought my parents together because they had a very tumultuous relationship. Very bad marriage. Um, lot, Like I said, he did nothing but cheat on my mom. <laughs> Womanizer, cheating on my mom abusive, everything, all the cliches, they were there. You know, I spent my childhood when he was around having to watch my mom cry and comfort her. And it's like, I'm sitting in my bedroom with my mom while she's breaking down, just total breakdown. Cause of what my dad did to her, or what my dad, my dad would always leave her for some 18 year old girl out of high school or something, you know, and ditch us and leave us, you know? And I, as a kid, it's like, you feel horrible, but you're also uncomfortable. Like, I don't know how I can help in this situation. You know, your mom's just, in, but you know, now it's like, I really realized what she was going through as an adult. It's like, man, that's ridiculously hard. And, um, and before, right, right when she was born, my little sister, that their marriage was at an all time, all time low, horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. Um, but then this child brought them together. Their marriage got better because they both like bonded over this kid and me, I, I wasn't like jealous or anything. I thought it was great, you know, because me and my dad's relationship was still kind of not the greatest, but I was happy that whatever was going on now um, was causing him to be a better father for the younger kids at home, even though I was an adult for years and moved out of the house. So I thought it was great. Um, he didn't have to say he was sorry to me, even though he was extra bad to me. I mean, like, really bad to me. I didn't need an apology from him. I know that's not his style. Um, because I think around that time when he was around 40 and Meredith, the, the my sister was born, it was one of those things where I could see in his eyes that he was sorry. You know, yeah. like I could tell, I could tell he's sorry. He doesn't have to say it. Um, that was good enough for me. And I was just happy that he was learning to be better anyway. Now he was already starting to change his ways, which is great. Then she gets the diagnosis. And it's like, oh man, like, it's just like, I, I, it's like Indian given, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, it felt like God gave my father something to turn his ways around and to actually teach him how to quote unquote love and, you know, be a parent. And then it gets ripped from him. And, uh, 
I felt bad for him. I felt super bad for him when she got that diagnosis and I saw how much it rattled him. And, and it's so weird because I felt bad for him. But at the same time, it's like, man, I got to see my dad be a human being for the first time in my life. It was insane. It was, it was unreal. And it was good though, because it helped me actually relate to my father for the first time in my life. Like, oh my God, you have a soul. Yeah. You know, seriously, it's like, oh my God. And, you know, I had forgiven my father, uh, before that. So it was all good. But like, man, I just, it, it was, it was good. It was, it was changing him. And, uh, mm. and he wowed me. Like I, he, he stepped up to the plate. And when she was sick, like I said, he worked his job full time. He went up to, he drove hours to the children's hospital every moment he had free. He was not getting any sleep. He had to sacrifice his, his precious time with the kid that he loved to, to work a, a soulless job. Props, respect. And, uh, he rose to the occasion. And then she dies. And now I'm scared because I was concerned that, uh oh, this is going to send him over the rails and he's going to go back to being the same old guy from before. You know, like he's going to start doing the hard drugs again. Um, he's going to, you know what I'm saying? Like he was that mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. He, he, he <laughs> and he was always that guy growing up where he would, uh, you know, me. I didn't come from a religious immediate family, you know, nobody went to church or anything like that. And I, I sort of tried to discover spirituality and all that stuff, uh, on my own. And he was the guy that would mock me for it and say, fuck God and flip off the sky. You know, he was that guy, you know, and he wasn't even like, let me be myself. He would be like, he would mock me. He would mock me and like, say I was stupid. So it was kind of a mind fuck, but, um, yeah, so I was scared he was going to get bitter when she died. He was going to get bitter. He was going to get bitter towards God. He was going to get bitter towards everything and he was going to grow distant and but no, man. This is where the miracle happened. Wowed me. When she passed away, he did what everybody should probably strive to do and he embraced all the kids even more. Yeah. And he did and he didn't throw his fist to the sky. If anything, he actually developed a bit of a faith because it, it, it kind of like worked backwards where it's like, where it basically my sister showed him that, you know what? There is life outside of this. There is a God. And also it's like, there's no way that this girl he loves so much wasn't, wasn't with him still in a spiritual sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was different. It had the complete adverse effects of what I thought was going to happen. And it was amazing. And so get this. He, like I said, he did a great thing. He, he, he really embraced it and did it the best. He, he did exactly, he, he did amazing. But so one year late, one year later, like exactly, almost exactly one year later from her getting diagnosed, my dad got diagnosed. And so we're talking one year. My mom and dad were still mourning, right? Mm-hmm. They, they still were. They were still living in the house without my sister that she was in. Um, they had pictures of her all over the house and things like they were still very much mourning. And, uh, yeah, my dad, very stubborn guy, never went to a doctor. My parents are those types of people. They don't want to go to the doctor because they think something's going to go wrong. Like, like that's kind of an ass backwards way of thinking like, well, what if they tell me something I don't want to hear? I'm like, okay. I mean, I totally get it, but you know, it's, it's kind of backwards logic. Anyway, my dad never went to the doctor and of course he had years of abuse, like drug abuse and alcohol abuse. That stuff catches up to you. He wasn't doing that stuff then, but you know, damage is done with that stuff, yeah. right? What do you and have? So, well, 
So in the middle of the night, this guy that never would go to a doctor basically was pissing coffee. It was like black. Really? And then he freaked out. He's like, okay, I got to go to a doctor. And then it was just one of those things. It was like round two where one second, everything's fine. Like one second, everything's cool. And then the next second you go to the doctor because you started pissing coffee and literally the doctor was like, yeah, you've got cancer all over your body and uh, they couldn't help him. This all happened so fast. It's yeah. like our head was spinning. We're at the doctor and he's like, and they said, yeah, you've got cancer. They said it started as colon cancer, but who knows when he had that originally because it was spread all over. Mm-hmm. And they're like, your, your, your liver's messed up from all the years of abuse. His liver, like your liver um, couldn't take chemotherapy. Right. Yeah. And so they basically sent him home saying, no, nah, you got maybe uh they literally said you got anywhere from two weeks to a few, couple of months. Can you imagine that? Like everything's okay. You had a normal night, you know, are still kind of mourning and somber from your daughter dying and yet, but you have a normal night relatively, you know, cooked dinner for the family, the whole thing, watching a movie with your wife. And then all of a sudden within an hour you're at the doctor and then you're getting this head spinning news. And now all of a sudden you, you just went home with a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? And I, I, and I went to, I went to the doctor, I went with them. I was there for the whole thing and crazy. It's just like all, it's another dose of reality I got. You know, I'm trying to like live vicariously through people the best I can. And, <laughs> and so they sent him home. I can't imagine what my father was thinking on that drive home. I can't even recall if he was the one driving the car. I don't remember what was going on, but can you imagine if you were just told that you were going to die and you thought you probably went in thinking you just had some kind of infection? Yeah. I, who knows what's going on? And I, I, my mom probably took over the the, the the steering wheel at that point. I mean, like yeah. I and um, yeah, so we drove home, and it was a very interesting evening. The next day, like I said, it was the next day, so I, I can't even imagine how we slept that night. Or him and my mom, what they were talking about in their bedroom. That's just crazy to me. But the next day, he got a call from a doctor. And uh, it was this doctor that, um, you know, because I know they had dismissed him and told him, hey, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. Go home. You know, really no candy coating to it. No real kid gloves. It's just like, hey, bye. Don't let the door hit you. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll still bill you. But uh, he got a call from this doctor the next day. And this doctor said, hey. I want to try something. It's experimental. It's risky, but, um, cause you're not, your liver's not in a good, good spot. But basically he wanted to, uh, try something. He said, we want to put a stint in your liver. Uh, let's put a stint in your liver. Let's try that and see if we can get your, uh, let's bring up your hemoglobin levels. Let's see if basically if we can get your liver in good enough shape to accept chemo, to, tr- to accept treatment. And, uh, he did. I mean, he went from the last night saying there's nothing we can do, you know, go start making arrangements to, Hey, let's try this. You want to try it? Yeah. And then he went in and they, they put him on a table and they were going to put him under. And I remember he was telling us this, uh, after, <laughs> after he had gone through it, he said, yeah, they were putting me out and, uh, <laughs> they were trying to like, uh, give me the anesthesia or put me out or whatever. And then as I'm slow, sort of like drifting off the whole counting back from 10 type of thing, the doctor uh-huh. says, Oh yeah. And then he tells me when I'm drifting off on the table that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a 90% chance you won't make it off this table. 
because it was that he was in bad shape. Like, yeah, this might kill you right here. But like, basically, it was kind of what do we got to lose situation. But he wasn't prepared for that. He's like, it told me this on the table. And it didn't. So no, no, he didn't. So he woke. All right. It was a six. Yeah. You're like on the edge of your seat. Like, what happened? (laughs) No. And so, yeah, it was a success. And uh, he had the stent in his liver. And so. Did he outlive the original? Like, oh yeah, they told they told him uh, the couple. He could have been dead in a few weeks. To uh, they literally like were like weeks. That's what they said. Yeah, yeah. I don't. He lasted some months. It's funny because I remember it being closer to six months. My mom swears it was like three months, like my sister. But regardless, he the stint was working, and he was getting, and it got to a point where his liver was as strong as yours or mine. Believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, we got your liver up to speed. You're ready for uh, treatment. Let's go ahead and try it. And it was giving my father some positivity. Like, all right, well, you know, you know, you always get that hope. Like, okay, well, maybe I can beat this type of thing. And and it's funny because never, ever, he always kept a stone wall approach to it. Like, even <laughs> even after he got, it's like he was, you, you couldn't, you couldn't really tell that he was, he was going through what he was going through. Because he never yeah. talked anyway. He was always no no expression on his face. Man of little words. You would have never known. So it blew me away that he wasn't just totally breaking down because that just wasn't his style, I guess, to show that emotion. And uh but they got his uh, they got his liver into a level where he could start taking chemo, but they started small. They said, We're gonna kinda give you baby doses of chemo, right? Work up to it. And he started going in for chemo and getting like baby doses of it. And it was doing him well. Like he was, you know, I think he was probably taking away his appetite. You know, it probably had some effects, but he was already bald, you know. <laughs> he was. Yeah. Um, but it, he he was in higher spirits because they kept saying, oh, man, things are going well. Things are going well. Um, the, the small doses are, are good. You're responding well to it. And, man, he was riding high. And uh, then came a point where they're like, you know what? You're ready. I think. I think we're ready to uh, do a, a full dose of chemo now, right? And really hit it head on after after a few months or so. And I remember he went in, did his full round of chemo, and uh, of course he's kind of riding high now because it's like, wow, he's already outlived their expectations, and he's already doing. You know, he's already beating all the odds they already told him from the beginning. And he goes and he did his first round of chemo. And I remember I was spending all my time at their house at this point because I didn't want it to happen with having my sister again. I didn't want to like mm-hmm. not be around. I was like, I'm going to stay here. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was actually moving. I was actually moving to uh, California. I was trying to like do my pilgrimage and kickstart my life and, you know, all kind of thanks to my sister. I'm like, I'm going to be daring. And, uh, I was visiting home in Omaha, you know, where Riverman lives, um, and uh, one of our co-hosts normally. And uh, I was making a pit stop there, saying hi to him and a couple of friends, and I was going to fly from there to uh, California. And I, and literally, literally, when I was at the airport from there to go to California to start this new life, I had a job lined up and all this stuff, everything. I got the call from my mom that my dad was going through that. Uh, that that's what it was. It, it turned out to be that like, and it just, I, well, no, I think it was uh no, no, what it, well, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to get my timeline straight. I think it was, there, it was something to do with that, but basically I had to make a choice that, okay, 
I'm not going to regret this. I'm not going to do like I do with my sister. I, I literally turned around and flew back home. I had given up my apartment back home. <laughs> I had given up like where I was from. I gave up my apartment, my job and everything. And my life changed too. And I went back and I stayed with my parents. And cause that was more important. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm not going to live with this. But anyway, that's why I was around the whole time, but I'm glad I was. But anyway, when yeah. he came back after that day of doing the full thing at chemo, uh, dude, he was great. Like yeah. that was actually the best day he had the way he felt the whole time he'd been like diagnosed. He was, he was in high spirits. I remember, uh, we went to the store. He came home. He's like, Hey, let's go, uh, let's go to the market. Let's buy some stuff. Let's have a big barbecue. Um, cause he liked to cook big feasts and stuff cause he was a chef and, and he was in high spirits, acting normal, making jokes. It was crazy. And this is like the, the day, the first day he hadn't had his real round of chemo earlier that day. Everything was so amazing. And then we come home, we, we cook, he does this whole thing, makes his big meal. It's great. And then kind of after the meal, he starts not feeling too good. So he goes to bed early, kind of goes to lay in his bedroom, whatever. And then in the middle of the night, all of a sudden he starts like screaming and like moaning and like screaming, like in pain. And, uh, he was in agony and he was begging like, emergency room emergency room and this is it takes a lot for this guy to beg for the emergency room take him to the emergency room and that that very first round of full-fledged dose of chemo um burned a hole in him basically septic septic shock really yeah it it just burned a hole in his inside somewhere and he was going to sepsis or whatever they call it and um yeah that was uh then they take him to the hospital and then they put him into a coma they put him into a, a an induced coma you know and once again, it's the roller coaster of cancer. Like he went through the greatest day he'd ever had on top of his game thinking, I'm going to beat this. And like literally a couple hours later, he's, he's in a coma. Like what just happened? Mm-hmm. What just happened? And they were telling my mom and they were telling us that we don't, they didn't know if he could bring him out of the coma because they're like, if we bring him out of this coma, he's probably going to die. He probably won't make it. Or, if we bring him out, um, he's not going to be right. Um, so it was like a whole bunch of questions on what they should do. And um, see, I was personally impacted by all this because me being the chicken shit I am, I I had a lot of unresolved business with my father. You know, yeah. a lot of unresolved business. Like I said, man, we had a history and. You know, not to not to get too emotional or anything, but you know, he never told me he loved me. He did. He wasn't that type of guy. Like I said, he was super abusive. I, I, he I, he hated me, right? I I was just the reason why he wasn't this or that. I was the reason why he wasn't a doctor. I was the reason why he wasn't this. Like he just had all this resentment towards me. And uh, you know, I grew up later to realize it was just jealousy. It was. He was jealous because his life kind of hit the fast track early and I was living my life and not, you know, having a bunch of kids early and getting doused with responsibility. And I was actually doing these things that I wanted to. And I think he just was extremely envious of that. Um, I represented what he lost youth. And, uh, but you know, um, I just, I wanted to talk with him. I wanted to have a talk with him. I wanted to be, able to tell him, Hey, I forgive you. And I wanted to hear him say he, I mean, I, selfishly, I think I probably wanted to hear him acknowledge it too. And I just, I wanted him to say, I wanted, I wanted to tell him I loved him for the first time ever. And I wanted him to tell me he loved me back. It's that simple because, you know, back then when I was a kid, 
you go through different phases. It's like you're a little kid, every little kid at the, at the, at the heart of it. I don't care who you are. If you're a guy, every little boy just wants to impress his daddy. That's it. Mm-hmm. You just want, you just want your dad's attention. You want to impress him because he's like, he hung the moon and the stars. It's just like my little sister. When you're that young, all you know is your family. Like your dad is like the king, the emperor of the universe, as far as you're concerned. And, um, you know, even despite the abuse, physical, emotional, all the abuse, I still just wanted my dad's attention. Um, and I never got it. And he never told me he was proud of me. I remember like I got, um, you know, you always want to like try and find things to bond over with your father. And my father was into music. Like he liked to listen to music and he liked <laughs> Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, Metallica, all that stuff. So I gravitated towards it. Like, Hey, I, I wanted to like that music too. Cause then we could have something in common. And I did get into it and, and I figured, Oh, well, I'm going to learn to play guitar because maybe my dad will be proud of that. Like he'll, he'll be impressed. And, uh, man, I, uh, I remember I got a guitar and um, I remember one day I was really bad. I was like young, you know, I was like fucking 12 or whatever. And I remember I, I intentionally left my bedroom door open and I had learned like the intro riff to like <laughs> one of his favorite songs. I don't know if it was like a, a cliche, like crazy train or like an inner salmon. I don't even remember to be honest with you, but it was like a song that he really liked. And it was like a, just like the the first bar. Right. And I played it over and over again. Um, but I was proud of that. And I left the door open. I'm like, okay, eventually he's going to walk down the hall and he's going to hear me playing this riff. If I just keep playing it over and over and over again, he's bound to hear it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm going to get his attention. Man, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. He walks in there and then um, he mocks me, mocks me, says I sound like shit. And he basically, he starts mocking like he has a guitar doing like sort of a derpy face. Like, oh, you think you're a rock star? Uh Yeah, you're a fucking rock star. Fucking like like I was a piece of shit. Like I wasn't good. Yeah, dude, I cried like a baby. I hurt. That was a turning point for me. That's I think that's when. I shifted gears and then I became resentful because then you enter your teenage years mm-hmm. and then your you know, your high school and your late middle school. And I became resentful. I'm like, you know what? At that moment, I was like, fuck this guy. Right. Oh, fuck, fuck this guy. Um, and you know, so then, but I used that as my fuel. I didn't let it, you know, myself become downtrodden because of that. I actually used that as fuel to <laughs> be resentful and do everything anyway. So I kept playing guitar and I got really good and, I kept doing all these things I wanted to do and uh, just kind of out of spite. But that, that was a turning point for me. And I never forgot about that. That mo- I mean, there's tons of things I could point out, but for some reason, I always go back to that moment because it was just so hurtful. Cause it's like, yeah. that was, cause it, cause it was the turning point. That was the moment where I realized every moment up until that point, I had just taken that abuse. I, I had consistently tried to impress him and get his love, even though he clearly was not giving it back to me. <laughs> and that was the moment where I'm like, Oh, what the fuck am I doing? Fuck this guy. You know what? This guy, this guy abuses people. He's horrible. Uh, it's just, he's the reason why we have cold winters and no electricity. We used to have cold ass winters, man. We'd have a bunch of little kids surrounded by a space heater with no utilities, no light sometimes, no food. And I'm like, this is the guy's love I'm trying to get. Yeah. And then he won't even tell me good job. 
He won't even acknowledge that I'm playing a piece of his favorite song. Who gives a shit if it's not perfect and I don't know the second part? Who cares? So, anyway, I wanted to talk to him before he died. <laughs> so, yeah. and I just wanted to say I forgave him. I had since forgiven him. and Because the thing is, is to forgive somebody, you have to try and understand them. And as I got mm-hmm. older, I did. I'm like, wait a second. My dad's like this because of a certain reason, too. He had a certain upbringing too. So there's a reason to this. So I'm not saying that he's not responsible. I think everybody's responsible for their own actions, no matter what they do, but at least I can understand it. You know, I don't have to Mm -hmm. condone it, but I can understand where it came from. And through that, I forgave him. I mean, there's a reason why he doesn't talk about his past, that he was so mysterious, you know, there's, I mean, like, like, what did he go through? Did he, what kind of abuse did he go through? You know, um, and I mean, there was, there was certain types of bu- abuse that I don't know if I can talk about because it, cause, you know, it's different when it's not me. Yeah. But, uh, let's just say I learned about some abuse that he experienced early on. Um, that, uh, nah, you know what? I, I'm going to talk about it. I think it's healthy for my dad too. So anyway, but I'll, I'll get there, but I understood my father and that helped me forgive him later on in life. So, but I still wanted to have a talk with them, but I was a chicken shit, man. Like I would, the thing is, is when he got, when he got the death notice, like right when he went to the doctor the first time, I'm like, oh shit, oh shit. I got to have a talk. I got to have a talk. But then things started looking up. And, and of course me, I started feeling relief. Like, oh, okay. I got plenty of time. Yeah. (laughs) I got plenty of time to talk to him because he was not, he was the hardest guy in the world to talk to. Hardest guy in the world to talk to. Like this is, you know, you, you've seen that 70s show. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, he's like not a network TV version of Red Foreman. Yeah. Red Foreman's really good compared to my dad, but he was super hard. You can't talk to him. Um like Red Foreman's great compared to my dad, trust me, but I'm just trying to like find some kind of like parallel. But like he's not the guy you can go up to and be like express your feelings because any other time in the past you were a baby. He he's the kind of guy that would try and make you cry. Like are you going to cry? He's fucking baby, you're going to cry. You're going to cry. You're going to cry. Yeah. Yeah, he's totally insensitive. So very hard to talk to him. So when they, so when he was on the upswing and things were looking good, I'm like, great, I can, I can hold this off a little more, <laughs> or maybe I won't have to do it at all. <laughs> that whole thing, yeah. and uh, you just don't expect it to turn like drastically in a moment's notice. You think you're going to have some sort of uh, advance notice, like, oh, he's on the decline. Now it's kind of going to reverse. You better start thinking about talking to him. Nope. Like he was, like I said, riding high, the best day he'd ever had. Things were looking up. Two hours later, he was in a coma. And I'm sitting there looking at him in a coma like, oh, my God, no, wake up. I got to talk to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, once again, I was like, you asshole, you get me again. Now you're in a coma. No, wake up. We got to talk. Because mm-hmm. I didn't want to have something else to live with. And um, man, that drove me crazy. I remember seeing him at the hospital when they had in the co- they had him strapped to a to a bed and they had him strapped down like king kong because he was in a coma because it's like man uh they had him they had him strapped down i guess just in case he woke up or something they had something something like thrown down his throat and they had his like he was strapped down like leather like a mental patient it looked like because my dad was a big guy it looked like king kong and i'll never forget man i saw the most pure form of my dad i've ever seen in my life because in that chair in that room he started to come out of the coma. Really? Yeah. And uh, 
he didn't even know what happened. Can you imagine? He went to the doctor and all of a sudden he's out. Do you think he's going to know where he's at when he wakes up? Yeah. No, I saw him open up. He's got this big thing down his throat so he can't talk or whatever. And he's strapped. I see his eyes open and he starts freaking out. You see the terror in his eyes and then he's strapped to this bed. Like, what the hell's going on? Like, talk about you're staring mortality in the face. Yeah. And he's, he starts freaking out. I've never seen my dad act like that. And then they started trying to put him out, like put him under, pump him with stuff. And I just looked at his eye because he had stuff all over his face. So you couldn't really see his face. But I just looked at his eye turn and look at me and my mom and a tear rolled down his eye. Yeah. And I saw fear in my dad's face and my eyes for the first time in my life. And I felt super bad for him because it felt like I was looking at a kid, like a child, mm-hmm. like helpless. You know, how how horrible and terrifying is it to wake up strapped, bound, you got something down your throat, you can't talk. Um, and it's just, it's, it's horrible, man. My my heart got ripped out of my chest. And they put him back out. And uh, he was, that was it. And then, then came the moment of, okay, what do we do? Do we pull him out of this coma? What do you want to do? And then it was one of those things where if we pull him out, he could die. Like, there's a great, great, great chance he'll just die. Um, but you know, and I think maybe my mom was in the same headspace of we got to have a last moment with him or something. We got to take this chance instead of just like pulling a plug or something, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I know I wanted to <laughs> have a chance with him. So we decided to, to to try and get him out of the coma and he came out of it. But I I missed my opportunity, man, because when he came out of it, there was so much damage done to his brain. He was brain damaged from like like oxygen and stuff like that levels. But yeah. um yeah, so when he got out of the coma, he was like he had the mind of a th- like a 3-year-old. Really? It was re- it was weird. It was weird. My mother, she regrets it. I I don't know if she regrets. She says that she hates it because now the last memory of her husband, this guy she knew for all those decades, was now reduced to how she saw him last. Like infantile but he got out of the he got out of the the coma and he was looking at my mom and it was so weird man there was this moment where they brought him uh like a coca-cola and some ice cream or something and he was literally sipping the coca-cola with a straw really slow everything was slow motion and he sips it and he literally looks at us and he's like isn't that the best thing in the world like he was talking like a kid like his ice cream and um he went home, they sent him home and for hospice care, you know, because he was still going to die type of thing. And they sent him home hospice and set up this, his like bed and stuff and in his bedroom and stuff. And he lasted three days from that point, but it was weird being in that house with him in hospice because it was almost like Zelda from pet cemetery, you know, like he didn't want, it was weird going in there in his bedroom because he, and he, he was quiet. He didn't talk. He was almost like a, a half vegetable because he'd walk in there and he'd be watching TV and his eyes would be open. He'd put the TV on for him. He couldn't work the remote himself. And, uh, you know, I'd talk to him like, uh, dad, do you want to watch MASH or do you want to watch this? Oh, that's okay. It was weird. But so he was there, but he wasn't there. And, um, yeah, dude, I, I remember, uh, I remember, Three days into it, I was looking at him and I just knew I'm like, mom, he's, I think this is it. I think he's going to die. Cause he was starting to do, I think he was starting to do his hallucination stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He was starting to do the same thing where he was seeing stuff. And so we called his nurse immediately. She, the nurse came over and, uh, 
<laughs> she immediately called a priest or whatever, or, you know, whoever, you know, religious figure and uh, got everything prepared. And yeah, he was, we, you know, you, you go around the body and you say a prayer and you do that whole thing. And uh, dude, I, I, he was sitting there and he wasn't dead yet, but like he was breathing heavily and he was looking off into space. I literally, I put my hand on his chest. I did. I put my hand. I could have never did this to my dad when he was <laughs> lucid, by the way. How weird mm-hmm. is that? But I did. And he was taking breaths and I, I felt him. I felt his heartbeat for the last time. Like that's heavy mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And then his heart, yeah, I felt his heart stop beating and then they took him away. And they called the people and they hauled his body away. And I didn't get my moment because I wanted my moment to talk to him. But like, even when he was in hospice, I couldn't talk to him anymore because who was I talking to? I wasn't talking to the guy. I was talking to like the innocent version of the guy. Um, So once again, I had some uh, things that needed resolved that I wasn't able to get resolved. So I did the next best thing. And, you know, because the funeral was like the next day or something. Right. And I did the next best thing and I, I took out a notebook and a pen and I just wrote him a letter. I wrote a letter to a dead guy and it was kind of like the poem, right? You know, where it's kind of like purged out something, man, I started writing and I didn't stop writing. I had like 20 pages, not even joking. I just, I just let it all out from like day one. And I just, I, I just word vomited everything on this page and I wrote 20 pages front and back and I was crying my eyes out. So like, as I'm writing, my tears are like making the ink in the paper all wet and soggy and smeary, but I just kept writing and I just like, it was just cathartic and I had this giant ass letter and then I, I folded it all up, put it in a big old notebook, a big old uh, envelope envelope. And the next day at the funeral, I put that envelope in, in it, in between his arm. Like, you know, I put it in the casket with him and that was it. So I wrote my daddy a letter and I buried it with him and it better than nothing. You know, I felt, I felt good after writing it because I was crying like a, like just crazy. It was everything. Cause I, I was able to say everything and believe me, I addressed it all in the letter. Basically that I was a coward and I couldn't talk to you. And here I am resorting to writing it down because I'm such a coward, but you know, it's all I can do the whole thing. I told him the whole thing about, Hey, look, you know, I, I forgive you. I loved you, but you know what? This was horrible. And you know, I just wanted your love and I was just a little boy that wanted to impress you. Dude, I let it all out. Got super candid and uh, it, it kind of worked and I gave him that and it's still there with him. It's still buried with him, but it was like a signal. It was like a symbol, not a signal, it was a symbol of closure, right? It was my symbol of closure, the best I could do. But it, But anyway, that actually goes back to my sister though. Because that was my sister's purpose. So you ask, why, why, why does her, she's so innocent. Why does she have to suffer? Well, my theory is my dad was going to die a year later. So God sent my sister to change him before he died. Right? Because he was going to go out on a real bad note. But he actually went out on a good note. Because of her. So the theory that me and my family like is that, you know what? God sent him an angel. She broke him down and rebuilt him. And, uh, he left, he left the world, um, in time, uh, as a, as a good guy with some faith, right? With the whole thing. So it's, it's actually a happy ending in my opinion. And so, mm-hmm. and you, now, do you want to know, um, 
I'll say one last thing uh, at the funeral because this is trippy, man. This could be like a, a segue into a, a future podcast where we talk about uh, the paranormal and stuff. But we went to at the memorial service or the wake or whatever. This guy comes in that my dad used to work with. He hadn't worked with him in like five or six years, but he was always really close to him when he did. And uh, but we hadn't heard from this guy in like quite a few years. And um he had no idea. He would have had no one idea that my dad died or that the the wake was that day or anything. But he comes in, he he knew me, knew my mom, and his name was Ray. And he goes, I was sleeping last night to my mom. I was in bed. And then he didn't know my dad was sick or dying or any he didn't know any of that stuff, right? He didn't know. Mm-hmm. He said, I was in this dream, I was asleep. I, he's like, I think I was in a dream. It was like a really lucid dream or something. But in walked my room was Mike, who was my dad, was Mike. He walked in my room and he didn't know anything about my sister either. And he said at his, he had, he was holding the hand of a little girl. And, uh, told me what was happening and it was crazy. And he told me to call you. Yeah. And yeah, it's what he says. He's like, I didn't know anything about this. And I sure enough, I looked it up and I saw what had happened and here I am. And he went to the, the wake service. Isn't that crazy? That's absolutely insane. It is. Yeah. So crazy stuff. Uh, I know we kind of were all over the map with this stuff today. Um, I feel like I didn't say very much. I know, man. When you told me you wanted to do this new idea for a podcast, I did not expect I'd be balling on the fucking mic. This is this. I know. See, that's what uh, Zach was here for. <laughs> he was to add the effect, the cry, <laughs> added effect. But I'm gonna. It, this is gonna be embarrassing when I listen to it later. No, it won't, man. I'm not a shit. No, I don't d- give a fuck. You can't, dude. To see, it's that's what it's about. It's all about transparency. This podcast is all about honesty and openness. And uh, like I said, I know we we didn't really pinpoint on one topic in particular today because it's sort of the intro episode, but I, I think I really just kind of wanted to talk about myself a little bit on who I am and kind of give little tastes on uh, the things that I have experience with because I'm not a professional. I'm not some doctor. I'm not going to try and tote myself as holier than thou. I'm just a regular guy, but maybe regular people is what regular people also want. I don't know. I'm just saying I've got experience with with abuse. I've got experience with depression. I've got experience uh, with broken homes and families. And I've got experience with loss. And, you know, we all can relate on this stuff. And it's very therapeutic. It's very cathartic for me. The and, idea uh, of cancer scares me, too, because, like, yeah. it runs in my family. and Whose family doesn't it runs <laughs> these days, you know? My niece, her, my brother-in-law, her dad actually had a brain tumor when he was a kid. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's scary stuff, man. I'm, I'm officially labeled high risk because my dad and my sister, you know, so Mm -hmm. I, I go to the doctor and I, I get checked out. I'm responsible and I take, cause that's another thing I had to learn from my father. He didn't take care of himself. His, his death could have been technically clinically avoidable, right? They could have caught that early on and they could have fixed it. But, uh, so I, I go to the doctor, you know, I, I do all these things and, you know, and I just have to accept that, you know, one of these days I'm going to go to, I might go to the doctor and I'm not going to be like 
healthy as a horse always. You know, we get older, things happen. And so let's just live it up. Let's not be afraid to do what we want. You know, like right now I'm doing this bear all podcast, hopefully going to resonate with some people that want to sort of create a dialogue and get that going here. And I I, I just, I'm not going to be afraid to be open anymore. I don't care, you know? So, but yeah, I mean, I've already made a lot of stride. I told you I had social problems. I didn't like being touched and all that stuff. And then when my sister died, I started traveling. I broke out of that shell, man. Now I don't shut up. I podcast. I talk all the time. I touch, Mm -hmm. I, I, I hug people. I'm not afraid to give hugs. Uh, you know, I, I work on trying to tell people I love or that I love them because that was really hard too. I didn't come from a family where we told each other we loved each other. We didn't do that because my dad never said that. Yeah. My dad never threw around the love word. So it was weird. We don't tell each other we love her. And I, that's something I wanted to fix, you know? So there's people that I tell, I make sure I make a chore and I make a, uh, I make, I, I try to tell people I love them and all that stuff. And eventually it doesn't get weird anymore. And that's why uh, <laughs> I had a bubble too, man. You know, when people get really close to me, I'd sit there and like kind of take a step back and, you know, kind of get in the defensive mode. And that's not because I wanted to, or I really thought these people were going to like do anything or had any, no, it's just, it was like body. It was my reaction, my natural muscle reaction. Because when I was a kid, I associated people getting too close to doing bad things to me, hitting me, you know, or whatever. So I would get in the fetal position and, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it was just sort of reaction. And I had to break that cycle and I have, which is great. So that's what it's all about. It's all about healing and, you know, getting that uh, much needed therapy. But like I said, we didn't really pinpoint on any one thing, any topic, uh, future episodes. I want to be a little bit more topical. And I guess we'll sort of uh, base that around who we talk to. And uh, yeah, and I, I apologize. Uh, I, I do want to get Zach, you, please, you can share something, man. I mean, I know, I know you've experienced stuff like that too. So I don't feel like you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Emotional roller coaster, man. I didn't yeah. know you had a, a sister. I'd like, yeah, that was that was all new to me. Yeah, I'll have to send a picture. She was uh, adorable. Um, you don't want to talk about, you know, anybody who's lost. You don't want to be um, open with our listeners. You don't have to. It's just like. Yeah, similar, like, even, like, the last thing I said to my dad before he died was, like, the same thing I always did, like, love you. And even then, it's like, you feel like you have so much left unsaid, you know. But you're lucky, man. You guys had that relationship where you could say, you know, you're lucky to where you could say, like, hey, the last thing or one of the last things I said to this person was I love them. And that's why it's important. I mean, they they say that stuff growing up, like, you know, always tell people you love them because you never know when you're going to say. That's true, man. Because if you make a regular habit of telling people you care about that you love them, chances are the last thing you say to that person is going to (laughs) be that you loved them. Don't let people forget that. So you're lucky that you had that relationship. Never had it with my dad. Mm-hmm. So that sucks. How did you, if I can ask, have you had, I don't really know. How did your dad pass away? We never really, you know, obviously, like I said, it's like one of those things where there's certain things you just don't ask people and you like, you're afraid to talk about it. But I feel like I've, you know, earned something today. I've talked about a lot. Uh, no, what happened? how did your dad pass away? He, uh, he had a lot of back problems and they, uh, they got him on opioids, mm. which he started, uh, you know, abusing. Yeah. 
Man. Yeah, man, I didn't know it was that heavy. Yeah. My dad. Yeah, my dad abused substances and it was horrible, man. It was his downfall. And like I said, they eventually got him. <laughs> they eventually got him. Like they didn't get him directly. They got him indirectly when they couldn't, when his body wasn't strong enough to fight a cancer. But, um, man, I didn't know that about your dad either. That's horrible. Especially when it's, when it's, when it happens in a way like that. Cause I hear about that all the time with people that have like horrible back issues and they get on like painkillers to, cause of pain, mm-hmm. you know, and then, um, they kind of get down that path because of that. That's super sad, right? Because it's not, it's like they're not getting into some sort of addictive behavior because of uh, recklessness. It's because of yeah. pain. Uh, that's, that's horrible, man. It breaks my heart. But it's heavy stuff, man. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's a good place to kind of try and <laughs> wrap it up. <laughs> I, you know, it's getting a little, getting a little deep, getting a little heavy. But uh, like I said, that's the point of it. And like I said, I want to stress that this is sort of just our, our test episode. This is our first episode. Um, I want people to reach out. And if anybody has any dialogue, it can be about anything. It doesn't have to be about this per se. It doesn't have to be about loss. It doesn't have to be about like, it can be. But like, I, I want to talk about everything. And so hypothetically with the next episode, I want to start getting into the format. Uh, if you guys have any questions. Uh, any questions you guys ask or comment, we're going to take a segment to address all of them, answer every single question we get, um, unless they get super overwhelming, but every, please have a voice and, and say something and we'll talk about it. And you know what, if you want to send it more in private and not in the public form, do that as well. If you have, maybe if you feel like you'd like to come on the podcast, I really would like that because I want to try mm-hmm. and have a new guest as much as possible every week if we can get to that point. Um, so, you know, message me sort of your testimony, what you want to talk about. And it can be about anything. It could be about this like stuff that's hard to talk about, emotional struggle, loss, depression, abuse, whatever you want to talk about. No filters here. Or like I said, we're not going to be like this all the time. Like next time we might be talking about, uh, we could be talking political. We could be talking about, uh, it doesn't matter. I'm just saying it could be whatever today was all about to sort of give you an introduction, introduction to who we are. All right. Just trying to show you in good faith that, look, we're lifting the veil. Like I'm, I'm an to- emotional wreck, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. Uh, so, I mean, like, so I'm just, this is just sort of in good faith showing you that I'm going all in. Like, hey, look, I'm telling you, you guys can talk about anything because we'll talk about it. So, uh, but. That's all it is. It's about being real. It's about being transparent. So, any questions that you guys have, please ask them. Um, because chances are there's something that we can relate to and, uh, you know, maybe we can build a bit of a community going on here, but yeah, I'd love to have some of you guys on. So send private messages if you want comment, we will address all of them. And, uh, who knows next time, next time I want to, next time I want to get into talking about the Corey Feldman thing. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, cause that's a whole thing. I, I, that's, that's another thing too. When do we stop these podcasts? Do we just like go? Yeah. <laughs> or do we just stop? I think it's a pretty good place to stop. But um for now. Um but yeah, man, I, I want to dig into the whole Corey Feldman thing because that video, the more I think about that video we put out, the more I feel bad for him, man. Like, cause it's just you know how paranoid he seemed in that video? Uh-huh. Like, come on, the 
it's like I, I I feel coming at it from all angles. I feel so horrible for what you know happened to him, and I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, that he was abused, and he's just become so messed up from it. But at the same time, man, it also looks like the drugs have come up to him, and he's a little paranoid. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, it. You're right. I mean, I don't know what his motives are with the movie, but you know, him talking about, oh, this guy tried to hit me on the road. You'd think these powers would be, if you were going to have somebody killed, wouldn't you just have somebody like some, if you're a load rich, have somebody come up to him, just shoot him behind the head and call it a day. Why would you just like hire a guy that can barely drive, barely miss him on the side of the road? Yeah. It just, it just sounds like tree people paranoia, but there's a lot of stuff I want to get into. Like I said, there ain't no limits. Um, let us know what you think of this podcast and what you kind of think of this angle. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's uh, good. It's it, regardless if people don't want to listen to this, it's therapeutic for me. So that's something. Uh, but hopefully it can be really cool for you guys as well. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll pitch it. Uh, revivalhouse.net is sort of uh, the main website where we have other podcasts. We have, um, uh, our commentaries, which we do weekly, bi weekly. We do them all the time. Uh, got a lot of Halloween stuff, seasonal stuff up, Christmas stuff to come as well. Uh, we have the BTM podcast, which is the podcast we've been doing for eight years or something like that. Uh, lots of stuff going on, different various interviews with uh, different guests. Uh, in it's entertainment based, right? So different from this. So if you guys are into that, there's there's cool interviews with musicians and uh, filmmakers and things like that. But uh, hopefully you guys can kind of get on board with this and, you know, maybe even some of the other stuff we do. And I don't know. We look forward to more of Zach breaking down. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. I'm all about it, too. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got. You got anything, Zach? That's all I got. Oh, man. Bye-bye, puppets.